Dick Miller passed away on January 30th, 2019, at the age of 90. A beloved character actor, best known for his appearances in the work of Roger Corman, and later Corman alumni Joe Dante, Miller appeared in over 180 films, starting with Corman's Apache Woman in 1955, and continuing with memorable roles in genre favorites such as Little Shop of Horrors, A Bucket of Blood, The Howling, Chopping Mall, The Terminator, and many, many more. On You Don't Know Dick, we're going to, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the king of Marvin Gardens, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm great. I'll be honest about something. I don't know what Marvin Gardens is. Well, I know the king of Marvin Gardens is a Jack Nicholson film, which does tie into the movie we're going to talk about today. Is that because Jacko is in this particular film? He's in the movie. King Jack, as I like to call him. <laughs> I, I like to call him uh, Mr. Nicholson Jack if you're nasty. Oh, it's, I, I just did that the wrong way. Oh, mm-hmm. that's funny. It's all right. Well, we're not removing it. And this is live to tape. I should let everyone know that before we get going. <laughs> Liam, this is the first uh, uh, episode of our Dick Miller-themed podcast. Of course, this is under the umbrella of Cinema Smorgasbord. But this is a podcast devoted to the actor Dick Miller. I think we should start with why we made a podcast devoted to Dick Miller. Liam, you start. Tell us. Well, EC Doug, for those people who aren't aware, we, we are experts in devoting a podcast to an actor <laughs> that uh, normal people who aren't obsessive about movies don't know who they are, but they should. And one of those actors that came to mind as we were thinking about actors we wanted to talk about for me was Dick Miller. And not just because he, you know, as you started with, passed away recently, but because he's in such an interesting variety of movies. As you said, Little Shop of Horrors, Bucket of Blood, a lot of people remember him from gremlins you know uh it's he's just someone who whose career never had that sort of shine where he was a leading man but still managed to work a lot and being in a broad variety of films it's interesting because compared to our eric roberts themed podcast you know dick miller when it comes to fans of exploitation and horror and genre cinema generally, I think that there's generally a lot more affection for him. And that's probably because yes. he had kind of those larger parts in some very visible genre films. I'm thinking specifically of Gremlins and Gremlins 2, which are movies where you know he's a legitimate supporting character in. And then going back to those early Roger Corman movies. But one of the interesting things and one of the things I'm most looking forward to in this podcast, is digging into those realms which are not, you know, The Terminator, which are not uh, A Bucket of Blood. Movies that he appeared in in small uh, roles that that we might not have seen or maybe have not gotten enough attention, and just examining maybe where he's given more of those uh, uh, standout performances or maybe just appears for a few minutes or so. And that even extends to television because he did a lot of television work as well. It's funny because before I realized who Dick Miller was, I was already familiar with him because he just appeared all over the place. And because Gremlins was one of those formative movies for me when I was growing up, his was a face that I was already familiar with before I even knew, you know, the reputation of of Dick Miller and his connection to all of these other directors. I think it's the same for me. And I think that what his passing allowed me to do was to go back and realize that it wasn't the standout 
obvious roles for me as a genre fan it was some of these other things that i didn't know what they were and, and you know it's interesting dick miller as well as some other actors are they have these careers that can allow you to expand your knowledge of the history of cinema and yeah. the history mm-hmm. of, as you said of tv and i think that's interesting and i think for uh, us it's interesting to find different um, actors for a model that we've done before, but the actors change the nature of the show, and the those actors' careers and the time periods that they worked over. It was this is also not just a varied career, but a very long one. So we're talking mm-hmm. about dipping into all kinds of eras of entertainment that should be interesting, um, but also you know someone who uh, it kind of bummed me out that when when Dick Miller passed, it was sort of all the people I expected to were the ones saying like. Oh man, that's a shame about Dick Miller, but there were so many people I knew who weren't aware of him. So not mm. that all those people are going to hear this podcast, but even if one person does, and this gives them an opportunity to appreciate such a important figure for uh, these films, and that's that's worth it. The other parallel between this and our Eric Roberts podcast is that there's going to be a real mix here of incredibly visible, you know, high budget Hollywood projects and just and stuff that that probably even we have not heard of. Uh, and that, to me, is what makes it most exciting, but it's also the thing that makes it difficult <laughs> sometimes uh, as you go along, you know, 15, 20 episodes in when you're talking about a project that someone hasn't heard of, which is why we want to start with one or maybe even start with our first few episodes with projects that people are a little bit more familiar with before we dive a little bit deeper into his career, Liam. Uh, but before we get into what today's subject is... Let's talk about our favorite Dick Miller appearances. Do you have a favorite, Liam, that that you go to again and again when you think of Dick Miller's career? Uh, honestly, I'm I'm a bit of a noob. I, all the things that I know about are the most obvious ones. The 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 like many people, the one that stood out to me was Gremlins. I always remembered him from Gremlins. He was for me more memorable than our main person at gremlins sure <laughs> uh and, and as a as a young person that really mattered to me as i got older you know it, it's hard not to notice like oh that guy that's in the howling is also in chopping mall oh he's in terminator oh he's in little shop you know what i mean sure was just sort of noticing those things as they went on but i think as a kid like as a very young kid that character stood out to me in gremlins and so it it was the older uh, Dick Miller that I started to notice across properties. I mean, that I think in some ways it's very similar to my own view of him because he was a much gruffer, you know, uh, uh, he had much of a, a much more gruff appearance in those later roles, you know, in those post-1980 roles. And that's what I usually think of him as, you know, as a cop that shows up in a scene or two or a, you know, uh, like in Chopping Mall where he shows up just for like a single scene uh, or even in something like Demon Knight where he's a, a little bit older uh, in the mid-90s. You know, his was a, always a welcome appearance and very reliable, but I've always thought him as that kind of this gruff character, which is why it's really interesting for me to go back to some of these earlier roles where he, he's a little more baby faced even if he still has that dick miller voice uh and really seeing where that kind of developed it's even compared to again not to keep going back to our eric roberts podcast but you know since all of this really evolved out of it it's interesting to think that comparatively dick miller was never really a leading man right i mean he really always was a character actor even though a bucket of blood is a movie that he he was the star of almost every role afterwards just had him as a supporting role in some 
way, uh, as opposed to Eric Roberts, who kind of has moved into character roles and started as a leading man. So there is a possibility, if not a strong likelihood, that as we go through his career, we're going to hit movies where he's in it for literally two minutes. Or like something yeah. like The Terminator, right? Where he shows up in the gun store and he's in the movie in a very memorable part, but he's in it for literally, what, like two and a half, three minutes. Um, and that's just the way it's going to be. But yeah. that, that was, that's kind of the fun as well, right? Just, just examining those performances, but also examining the larger films that they appear in or the larger TV projects they appear in. I think it's worth it to me too because a movie like, for example, The Burbs, like, yeah, Gremlins was the first thing I remember him from but I probably watched The Burbs a hundred times it's one of those films that for whatever reason just connected with me at a very young age uh, it, it's funny because I've said this on the on Eric Roberts but I'll say it on here you know Joe Dante went to college with my mom they, they, oh, gradu- that's right. they graduated together and so the fact that The Burbs and some other Joe Dante movies were so huge to me and yet my mom only made the connection later of like oh right that's directed by Joe I know him and I'm like okay thanks mom <laughs> that would have been really important to me as a child <laughs> I mean it's still important to me now but just knowing like how many times I watched the burbs and so part of that experience is me thinking about um you know here's this actor who is not a huge huge part of the burbs but was important to me as a kid sure and knowing that he's done all these movies and other projects, and me thinking like I should take the time to get to know those. I, you know, as I'm surprised. Who cares about it? I should, you know. I'm surprised, Liam, that you haven't used your connection to Joe Dante to get more acting roles in his films because, I mean, renownedly, you are an actor as well. I hate you so much. You appeared, of course, in the Creed, the Rocky sequel, Creed. Right. Are we still talking about this? So what year did your mother graduate from college? I think that's what we're all wondering at the moment. Oh, that's a good question. I should ask her and find out, get clarity on that. Sure. Was, I think it was in the 60s, but I'm 60s. not sure what year. It was when Phil, when the, the the school is now the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, but at the time it was Philadelphia College of Art. Uh, but I, you know, I, I don't remember. She told me, but I don't remember what year it was. Now, I, I just want to posit one more question, <laughs> which is, it, is it possible that maybe in the late 70s uh, or early 80s, I think late 70s in your case, that your mother may have reconnected with Joe Dante briefly? I, stop it. <laughs> stop right now. Yeah, you know, just maybe they got together for a couple of drinks. One thing led to another. And nine months later, Liam O'Donnell. I'd love to make a similar joke about you, but no one interesting or worthwhile has ever gone to Newfoundland. <laughs> anyway, Liam. Newfoundland? No, both of those Nothenland. are... Newfoundland. Oh, Na- I see what you're doing, and it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Newfoundland. Well, Liam, since you have a personal connection now to the works of Joe Dante and <laughs> Dick Miller, uh, we'll remember that as we go forward. Liam, what movie are we going to talk about on the very first episode of You Don't Know Dick? Uh, the Terror. From 1963. 1963's The Terror. Uh, this is a, We chose this movie for a number of different reasons. Uh, the kind of primary one is that 
it's in the public domain, so everybody can watch The Terror. In fact, I imagine a lot of the people listening to this uh, podcast already have checked out The Terror because it might be... So it's the kind of movie that you would see in those public domain collections with like Night of the Living Dead and Carnival of Souls and also some other um, early Roger Corman movies, usually like A Bucket of Blood and Little Shop of Horrors. But The Terror has kind of a, a bit of more of an interesting history than some of those, I guess, depending on what you find interesting about low-budget filmmaking. And it's something that we're going to dive into when we talk about the movie in detail. Liam, what's your history with The Terror? Before we talked about it, doing it for this show, I had mm-hmm. never heard of it. Really? Never, ever, ever. In fact, if I had heard of it, the facts that it was, you know, partly directed by Francis Ford Coppola, uh, that Jack Nicholson was involved, as well as, you know, uh, Dick Miller... Uh, the involvement of uh, apparently Jack Hill and Monty Hellman. This would have been something that stuck in my brain, but I didn't know anything about it. It basically, I knew Corman was involved with it uh, when we talked about it, and that's it. And then all this new information is like kind of blowing my mind. <laughs> now, this is a movie I knew because of its somewhat troubled production. I mean, troubled might be, not be the right word, but it, it was kind of a threadbare, pieced together production. And I had heard about it because I had read a lot about Boris Karloff and uh, particularly how this movie connects with one of my favorite Boris Karloff movies and one of my favorite movies in general, uh, Peter Bogdanovich's Targets, which came out in 1968. But that movie uses a lot of footage from uh, the terror in its kind of its, its major climactic scene. And that's how I mostly connected with the terror because I'd oh. never actually checked it out, even though it was available. Like I had tons of those, uh, those public domain compilation, like DVD compilations and VHS ones. So I had the ability to watch it, but nothing really aside from the fact that it had Jack Nicholson as the star and Boris Karloff in it, th- that didn't really connect with me in any way. That's interesting. I, uh, usually avoided those, uh, public domain compilations because I always thought they looked terrible. Right. And they did. And in fact, that's one of the things that we're going to talk about when we get into the uh, movie proper, which is that most of the versions of this movie that are available in those compilations look absolutely horrible. And I actually am convinced that one of the reasons this movie has such a uh, rough reputation is because a lot of the people who have watched it over the last 30 years or so have watched it in these really crummy public domain versions. I mean that's understandable. It it I we we talked a little bit about this. There was a period of time on American TV and maybe Canadian too, but we we here we had those cheap stations. And for a long time I didn't know old films could look good cuz I only saw them <laughs> on these cheap stations and they were barely visible. It's just shadows talking to each other in a cadence I didn't understand and barely able to make out anyone's faces let alone what was happening. And this this version that we had available to us, though you were able to find a, a better one uh, later, mm-hmm. uh wasn't too much better than that. I could make out Dick and and, and <laughs> uh Jack and and uh uh Boris and that's about it and even then I was sort of guessing a little bit the first time Boris Karloff is on screen I was like I think I think that's him yeah that's right that's that's got to be him the voice the voice is giving it away you know like there was a there was a feeling of um, distance from this because it is you're struggling sometimes to see exactly what's going on Uh, I don't know that a better picture would totally save the plot of this film, but no. I guess we'll get into it in a moment. <laughs> but but I think it's interesting because my impression had always been that this is a very kind of 
dark and ugly looking movie but when you see it in a slightly polished form you see that you know they are using these really incredible looking sets because the sets already existed for these other uh roger corman poe movies and and you get to see them and you get to see i mean again there isn't a lot of them but you certainly get to see them in all their glory and i do think it adds a whole lot of production value to a movie that i always thought was kind of this low budget oddity but let's stop here liam Let's take our first break. When we okay. come back, okay, I'm glad you agree. When we come back, <laughs> we're going to talk about 1963's The Terror. Come in. I surprised her in her room. She was not alone. With my own hands, I killed her. Starring Boris Karloff. Take this gun. Escort this gentleman from the castle. If he resists, kill him. The terror, his evil mystic powers go beyond man's wildest imaginings. A young officer in Napoleon's army pursues a mysterious woman to a castle of an elderly baron. That is a very succinct plot of the terror from 1963, but that's probably about as much sense as you're going to get out of this film, which has a lot of twists and turns uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, now, the terror was directed ostensibly by Roger Corman, but uh, Corman has since admitted that he really only spent two days actually directing it because he was connected to a union at the time. So uh, sort of the <laughs> one of the things that Roger Corman, of course, is best known for is allowing a lot of young directors to get their first big break. They weren't paid much for that work, but it, it, he gave them an opportunity to work on feature films. So this movie has uncredited direction from Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Jack Hale, Monty Hellman, Jack Hill, who we talked about on one of our other podcasts recently, uh, Dennis Jacob, and Jack Nicholson himself, who apparently uh, was the person directing the waterlogged climax of this movie. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of different people directing it. In this case, uh, he uh, got Leo Gordon, a prolific television writer, uh, to write the film. But much of what's going on in it seems to have been made up as they were making it, at least to some extent, because I'm not sure that the plot itself entirely holds together. But maybe that's not what you're here for, because you do have a pretty interesting cast. Once again, Jack Nicholson playing a French soldier. Mm-hmm. You got Boris Karloff here as the Baron. You have Dick Miller as Stefan, who's kind of the, the Baron's servant or, or right-hand man. Uh, and you have Sandra Knight, who was Jack Nicholson's uh, wife at the time, as the uh, female lead, the ghostly uh, Helene or Ilsa in the movie as well. Liam, what did you think of 1963's The Terror? Oh, man. I think I'm going to go ahead and say that this was a difficult watch for me okay um <clears throat> some of the parts of this that don't aesthetically connect with me are amusing at first so this is one of those styles of film where multiple scenes just end with a dramatic fade out when it's not needed for any particular reason like they could easily cut to the next part but just nothing even that important has happened for the plot but it's like Dun, 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 and everything goes to black, and then we get to the next scene. And that was pretty amusing for the first, like, uh, five or so times that it happened. But right. it became, like, a theme that started to wear on me a little bit. Um, the story is a mess, 
and it's a mess in two ways. One is the actual plot doesn't make a ton of sense. But mm-hmm. let's let's ignore that for a second because you know this is this is very solidly a B movie. I mean, there's no other way to think of this film. Absolutely, like and and designed from the bottom up, I think, to be one. And it's never. I mean, this is the sort of movie that's never played first at a drive-in ever. It's always been the second feature forever. So let's just ignore that and just talk about what's going on like with the characters because it's not clear why anyone makes any like particular decision in the film like so jack nicholson he's suddenly obsessed with solving the mystery he encounters in the (laughs) baron's household even though he's warned from the jump not to go there he's told that this woman that he's encountered doesn't exist all these I mean, I think his I think his obsession with this mystery comes from a carnal place, right? And that's also uh, because they're not just willing to say he wants to bang this ghost woman he found. <laughs> he has to be somehow moved by like deep love for her, even though they've barely the conversation they have is like awkward and still like. Th- so it's not clear why he's doing what he's doing. The the Baron is just Karloff is just. Everything is just like you ask too much of me, sir. And it's just this, all this, whatever. Um, the only character whose motivations are clear to me are actually the crony old woman, because from this, from the first moment, we understand what's going on here with with the idea that the Baron found her, his uh, wife, and murdered uh, her and her lover. Uh, immediately, I'm like. Oh, that's what the that's what's going on with the crowd. Sure, mm-hmm. I know what's going on there. She's not even in most of the movie. She's the only character with clear motivations. After that, <laughs> why is Dick Miller devoted doing all his stuff? I don't know. He just likes his job. I, it doesn't make sense, let alone his accent, which we can get to that later. Um, it, the, all those things. The only character is is this like uh, poor woman, and then in the towards the climax, they take away. It's like she's uh, at least she's gonna win. At least someone's gonna get something that makes some sense. <laughs> and then they're like, "Aha! You were wrong the whole time for no reason." In a way that doesn't make any sense. So that that's all very negative. Is it amusing though? Uh, parts of it are kind of entertaining, honestly. Parts of it are kind of amusing. Uh, but it, this is definitely not my style of mystery, horror, suspense, whatever chamber drama, whatever this is supposed to be, is not a thing that I'm super stoked on. I think you really have to contextualize this movie around what Roger Corman was doing at this time period, which are those Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. And for anyone who's watched those movies, and Liam, I'm I'm getting from what you're saying that you're not necessarily a fan of those either. I have only watched a couple, but I didn't think they were bad. I thought they were okay. But at the very least, when people think about those movies, I think they think of them on a much higher plane in terms of the acting quality and the story quality than what we have here in the terror, even right. though the terror is often lumped in with those movies because it's, you know, using some of the sets and it's right around that same time period and has kind of a Poe-ish quality to the story on display. But for those who have gone back and watched a lot of those Poe movies, they're, I think they're terrific. I mean, they really, really uh, capture a very specific kind of mood. And there are things in this movie which capture that mood as well, that kind of... It, it, the kind of eerie mystery where you just don't know how much is supposed to be a dream or reality and death is always kind of lurking in the background. But the thing that this movie has difficulty overcoming is the fact that it does not make sense. And what not, you not for a moment. I mean, the motivations at the beginning, I mean, I guess you can you can 
fit together in your mind what the plot is supposed to be. You have Jack Nicholson. He's a soldier. He sees this mysterious woman on a beach, and he, he falls in love with her instantly. He finds this old crone and her son, and he's like, who's this woman? And they're like, there is no woman. There couldn't possibly be a woman. He is drawn to this baron in this giant castle, this baron who's basically uh, sealed himself off for the last 20 years, this baron and his servant. And apparently that servant, by the way, played by Dick Miller, is also the baron's son, um, though that's a little... It's not clearly defined in the plot of the movie itself. So so you have these characters, and like you said, when you find out the big first twist in this movie, which is that the Baron was away after getting married to a young wife, he comes back, finds her in bed with another man, and uh, he kills her, and his servant kills the man. And this old woman, she is the mother of that young man, and she has spent the rest of her life trying to get revenge. And so for the last two years, she's basically... Um, created this ghost that has been haunting the Baron into committing suicide. Okay, so those elements, you know, there's there's something there. That does kind of make sense if, if in the way that I'm telling you, but you really got to extrapolate information to piece that together. And character motivations and the way that they act in the movie, that doesn't make sense at all. And then when you add that final twist, which, yeah, we're, we're going to give it away now, which is that... <laughs> <laughs> When the Baron confronted his wife in bed with another man, somehow the Baron was killed, and the girl was killed, and the man, the son of the, <laughs> the son of the old crone, he went basically insane and took on the role of the Baron and started to think that he was the Baron. So the person, so Boris Karloff's character, the Baron, was actually the son, even though chronologically and in terms of his age, that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, and then why would his – so then is Dick Miller's character the fake Baron's son or the real Baron's son? I mean, he must have been the real Baron's son. So then why would he serve so devotedly fake Baron all these years? I mean, it, again, there is an implication from a lot of the behind-the-scenes things in this movie that certain aspects and certain twists in it were invented as they were putting the movie together. There's a long story – uh, or a long-held story that that Roger Corman, as he was going through the footage with Boris Karloff, because they only filmed with Boris Karloff for two days, he realized that the plot didn't make sense, so he had to add new scenes in order to make it make more sense. So this twist, I guess, with this uh, with this character, this this character who took on the role of the Baron, might have been invented at that point, and that's the only way I can see how it all came together <laughs> again not making sense but the, it, it kind of as a way to, to piece everything and make it at least hold <laughs> as a movie uh that's the only way i could see it uh developing that way but it's I mean, it's it's real strange doug you brought up the and I, for good reason the poe movies that corman did and i'm not a huge fan of those but but i think part of what holds those films together is that they are working from poe which at least has a core of something there. I mean, generally, I would agree with you there, Liam, except those adaptations of Poe use almost nothing from the story. I mean, if you have ever seen Corman's version of The Raven, I mean, it... Oh, it, I never saw that one, actually. Like they, they basically take general ideas and frameworks from Poe and then come up with an entirely original story on top of it. And if you watch it, you know, something like The Pit and the Pendulum or The Mask of the Red Death, I mean, these are movies that are wonderful and just visually really interesting, but in terms of their source material, they basically take the, the, the name and maybe a couple of big set pieces and that's it. I mean, you say that, but that all the ones that I've seen are still so much more successful. Than oh yes, this movie, mm-hmm. which 
uh, I so I didn't do the research to find out if this was a poem movie or not. I just saw all right, it's a Corman film. Starts out they're wearing ridiculous outfits. They got these ridiculous sets. This must be Poe related. Only as the film goes on, I'm, I just keep thinking. This is such a mess. This is so much more a mess <laughs> mm-hmm. than any of the po- of those Poe films that I've seen, which, again, I think I've only seen a few. Um, I just was really confused. Like, how how did this happen? And, and, and again, I guess I shouldn't be confused because if this was a Corman, if this was a 70s Corman sci-fi movie, I would say, oh, it's surprisingly coherent, actually. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, I just was expecting this to you know, have other elements that are perhaps ridiculous and fun. But I thought that the basic plot as it's presented would hold together to some extent, which then would allow for other humorous things. Like, for example, you know, Jack Nicholson is a French soldier. That's a thing that's, you know, or or even a period film in which you have Dick Miller and Jack Nicholson speaking to each other and occasionally trying to use words that would be appropriate for a period film but with their own affects and cadences thus making them sound like i mean it really felt like a neighborhood production of shakespeare (laughs) set but the neighborhood is the bronx you know what i mean like it's it's just that neither one of them has really felt the need to actor it up if you know what i'm saying (laughs) yeah i mean it it is interesting to see a young jack nicholson here playing a french soldier again not using any like they don't pepper the the script with French words, and he doesn't use a French accent, which is probably a good thing. It's hard to even imagine Jack Nicholson doing a French accent, but um, he's he's still somehow incredibly miscast here. Even well, imagine ja- imagine he's supposed to be a British soldier. Yeah, right. Still doesn't work. No. Even at, considering the time period, uh, let's say he's meant to be an American soldier of this time period. Still doesn't work. Still <laughs> not working. Well, for him. this isn't the Jack Nicholson of a decade later, right? I mean, this is right. a different actor, a young actor, and he is, you know, bumping up against someone with the weight of Boris Karloff. And I think Karloff is really good here, considering yes. the role that he's trying to play. Just to go back to the plot, just for one second, I just want to ask you some questions, Liam, about this plot. Oh God, please, <laughs> please don't. Because one of the things that the script brings up are like they'll bring up certain things and you're waiting for them to be paid off and then it, they never happen. Like in the first act of the movie, uh, Jack Nicholson's character is almost lured into some quicksand and he's uh, basically warned away from it by Dick Miller's character. And you fully expect that quicksand to show up again. And then the quicksand is never mentioned for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I no one falls into there. That, that is definitely not Chekhov's quicksand. My understanding is that the original script had Gustav, the son of the old crone, played by Jonathan Hayes in the movie. He was supposed to die in the quicksand. But instead, the movie swapped it to having his eyes pecked out and then him falling to his death. And honestly, that part where he's attacked by the bird and then falls is by far the highlight of this movie. Oh, I really thought the movie had made a turn. When that happened, I thought, here we go. We're, we're amping up to something real real good at this point. And then we just amp back down for the rest of the film. Now, the other thing is something that I worry I have just misunderstood. So I just need you to clarify for me, which is that sure, sure. apparently the Baron had a locked room that only he had a key to. And at yes. the end of the movie, Jack Nicholson kicks that door open and goes inside. And he finds a crib in there for a child because there's some dialogue saying did did the uh 
did the Baron's wife have a child? And and Dick Miller's character says, I, I didn't think so. And But then that never goes anywhere either. I legitimately thought it was going to turn out that Eric was his child. Eric that, being the, the person who was killed, who was, who was sleeping with his wife. Just, who, just to, who, by the way, wasn't killed, actually, that he actually <laughs> is that person. But yes, that's what I thought the big reveal was going to be. That would make some amount of sense, at least. Or maybe that the crone was his, that once all this happened, he forgot about his daughter, and the crone is actually his daughter. <laughs> the, the fact that, that uh, Liam and I are having trouble still working out some of the details of this is, I mean, it, I, again, it is a condemnation of the fact that both of us are not very smart, but also that the movie is confusing in a lot of different ways. Going back to the acting, yes, look, Jack Nicholson is not good in this movie. Uh, Jack Nicholson, I should say, by the way, is one of my favorite actors. I love Jack Nicholson. I'll watch him in just about anything. Uh, and, you know, he's not that far removed from Easy Rider at this point. It's just a few years, and he's certainly a much more accomplished actor at that point. But here, I think he's too young. I think he is playing a role that is beyond his ability at that time. Um, and it's it's just kind of funny to see him here. We'll talk about Dick Miller in a little bit, but Liam, I want to ask you, what do you think about Boris Karloff in this movie? I, he he feels like he's teleported in from another movie. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that it's almost like they they they. Uh, if technology was different, I'd say it was a hologram of Boris Karloff that they're acting off of because he's like really trying to make this role real. I mean, there's a couple scenes where his performance feels ridiculous, but it doesn't feel ridiculous because he's doing something wrong. It's because he's like responding in a way that the plot doesn't call for per right. se. Like it like. <laughs> Every time Jack Nicholson, first of all, Jack Nicholson can't ask him a que- his his character can't ask a question of the Baron that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, Jacques. You know, like every question <laughs> is like, "What's going on here, sucker?" And then Boris Karloff is always responding in a similar way of like, "Oh, I'm so offended." Even though sometimes these questions are not offensive questions in any way, just just a general. So what's going on, buddy? Is just sort of the. The, the, the tone of the content of the question and Boris Karloff's character is about to have a heart attack. He's so upset that he has to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> but that's not his perform- That's He's still doing what he's meant to be doing, which is this old-timey, you know, period, barren, uh, regal. Like he, he, he gives a lot to this character. And towards the end, when he's losing it, he's seeing this. I mean, and let's be clear, this ghost is not a ghost. It's a just a girl who doesn't even really look that much like the other girl, but due to some magic, she's possessed by the girl. So then she kind of has her like light or something. It's I very, think that's it's very that's very confusing as well because you're right. It does seem like that's what we're supposed to think, but she also has the ghostly ability to just vanish whenever she wants. Uh, and so there is an implication, especially at the end, when her voice is just kind of this. You know, it, this voiceover that's driving the Baron mad that she is a ghost. So it's hard to say how much of this is supposed to be, as the movie says, mesmerism, or if we're supposed to think that even in her, uh, the form that is visiting the woman and being hypnotized, that she's been a ghost that whole time. I don't. I mean, the, <laughs> the way that she ends up at the end. I thought maybe she had been a corpse, like she had animated a corpse. Now, what happens? Tell us what happens at the very end of the movie. With the, so this whole movie, Jack Nicholson has been obsessed with this woman. At the end, Boris Karloff he drowns because they uh, he's in the crypt with the the corpse of his wife. They open up this uh, the the local uh, uh, 
water way. It all floods in. He drowns. Apparently, Dick Miller's character drowns as well. He escapes. Uh, Jack Nicholson escapes with this woman, and then he takes her outside, and he's like, you're finally free. And then what happens? She melts. <laughs> she just melts. She melts her, her all of the devil's off. rain. Just, just, just melt. I mean, I, I actually shouldn't say that because the, the effects-wise, this is not nearly as good as the devil's rain. But it, it's meant to suggest that she just desiccates and goes away yes yeah and we're supposed it's to- weird it's like not what and i just oh, that's what i was like oh so she's a corpse or something right like what's going on here yeah i i again i don't know if that holds together well i also i don't know how sympathetic we're supposed to find jack nicholson's character he seems like a jerk the whole time and his obsession doesn't really make any sense because you know like you said it's, it very much is a a lustful uh, uh, attraction he has to this woman But the fact that he's so obsessed with it I thought at the beginning we were going to find out That he was dead all along just to throw yeah. on Another well, yes, twist Yes, Yeah it just there's a lot There's a lot going the, on here the motivating, the motivating I mean literally you could boil this movie down to Jack Nicholson is a soldier Who should be somewhere else by the way Like he's there's no reason for him <laughs> to be He sees a woman who he would like to ball he cannot ball her due to various uh, uh, obstacles. He must then unravel the various knots of, you know, almost a century old mystery so that he might ball. Like this whole <laughs> thing is just he needs to get his rocks off and all of these old timey magics and mysteries are in his way and he will yell at them until they are out of his way so that he might get his rocks off. He will even attempt to beat the crap out of Dick Miller for no reason other than he's got to get his rocks off. (laughs) So the acting I think is inconsistent, but I do think that Boris Karloff is really good here, but he's Boris Karloff. He always is. And he's playing kind of a stock Boris Karloff role. Though when I think about this movie, it's just Boris Karloff Walking upstairs and walking downstairs just again and again and again. He's in a uh, couple doorways, surprisingly. <laughs> and he's in the water at the end, though. It's it, it, Sometimes I'll cut to him, and for some reason he doesn't have white hair anymore, and he looks about t- 20 pounds thinner. So I guess he's not always Boris Karloff in that water. Um, I talked before about the idea that, that this movie was made on uh, existing sets, uh, specifically... There was a movie called The Haunted Palace with Vincent Price. Uh, I think kind of the main sets in this movie are, are recycled from that. Some of the Poe films, they use sets from that in this movie. Um, I do think that, and again, I'm speaking specifically of the version of this movie I saw. And I should say, by the way, that if you want to see a very nice uh, uh, remastered widescreen version of this movie, you can go on the YouTube uh, page for The Film Detective. And the film detective also put out this movie on Blu-ray with this very nice print. And uh, it's kind of night and day compared to the public domain prints that are out there. And I really do suggest that if you are going to watch this movie that you do that. You can watch it again for free on their YouTube channel. That it's a very nice looking movie in a lot of ways. I love how colorful it is. I th- it has that kind of Bava-esque mix of blues and greens in a lot of the scenes. And I think it is a, a very attractive looking movie. I think it makes great use of a lot of these sets. And the other thing I really like about this movie is the soundtrack. The score of it is... is it, I thought at first uh, listening to it, I was like, this must be like um, stock material that they've just pieced together but it was very consistent all the way throughout and i guess apparently it was because uh the composer was able to you know go off to foreign countries and get huge orchestras for cheap and they they filmed the entire soundtrack to this you know in in a very short amount of time but you know that's the thing this is a movie with a terrible script and some really shaky acting but it's all on really nice looking sets with this really nice soundtrack in the background you can almost be tricked into thinking that the movie itself is better than it is yeah, 
I, I, I kind of want to watch this nicer looking version just to like <laughs> get that feel because watching it in its more uh, darkened, hard to see <laughs> version actually felt entirely appropriate for what I was yeah. watching. I didn't feel like I needed something brighter and nicer. That said, it's 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 appropriate that you watch the junkie public domain version and I watch this other version because I think uh, most people's experience with this movie will be the same one that you had, Liam. Like I said, this is very, very commonly uh, available. If you look on YouTube for The Terror 1963, you'll find like a dozen or more versions of this movie all available to watch, all of that junky print. So, I mean, it. I think the fact that people could be having a different experience with this and now that it is a little bit more available, that, that maybe, you know, the opinion of it might change a little bit. But whether it changes or not, that doesn't make this movie a good movie necessarily. But I do want to talk about something interesting about this movie, Liam, before we get to Dick Miller and his performance, the reason that we're here, which is that, and this is something I didn't know until we were doing a little research for the show. So... Notoriously, the reason that there are so many public domain prints of this movie and Little Shop of Horrors and A Bucket of Blood is because there's no copyright notice on those movies. The same reason Night of the Living Dead is uh, in the public domain. However, Roger Corman tried to do something about that. So (laughs) people might know that George Romero tried to do a remake of Night of the Living Dead in 1990. Tom Savini directed. It's really good. It's really worthwhile. But part of that was a a way to try to get some money out of this property that had been fallen into the public domain. Roger Corman took a different track. He went and filmed new scenes for the terror in 1990 (laughs) with with a now 30-year-older Dick Miller as the same character, somehow having survived. And then he bookended this version of the terror and he released it into foreign countries. And that was an attempt to get the copyright back on the movie. Now, Liam, I had not heard about this before. Has this something that you had ever heard of before? Never, ever, ever. I uh, I saw some mention of it in some of the uh, obituaries of Dick Miller. And I was like, this I got to check out. And I was lucky enough on YouTube, there is the version with these extra scenes. And I watched it. And it's ludicrous, Liam. It's so strange. So you have Dick Miller. Uh, I think Dick Miller said that he was paid more for this these scenes by Roger Corman than any other work that he ever did for him. Uh, I guess they were just using scenes of of some uh, or sets from movies that Roger Corman was working on through Concord Pictures at the time. So the setup is that Dick Miller's character has returned and he's looking to kill the um, the the heir of the Baron, like the son who's now, I guess, terrorizing the same town. And so he tries to sneak in and stab this guy, but he gets caught and tortured. And the guy who was torturing him is basically what Dick Miller's character was to Boris Karloff's character in the terror. So he basically, he shows him that he has this pentagram on his neck while he's being tortured. The guy lets him out of the torturous device to tell the story of what happened. And then he tells the entire movie. Now, there's no, it doesn't like keep cutting back. It's, this is just a bookend. Then we get the entire movie of the terror, which, by the way, is only 80 minutes. So it's not even really, you know, a full length movie anyway. Then it goes back and you see that the torturer has been somewhat convinced. The new Baron, the, uh, the, the descendant of Boris Karloff's character, he comes on and he, I guess he's been like into black, ma- black magic and stuff. And he's like, take this guy to my room. And then you see that this new torturer scratches his neck and he has a pentagram forming on his neck. And I have no idea how all of this is supposed to connect to the terror (laughs) of 1963. It is really weird. In some ways, it makes like Dick Miller's character in this movie 
a lot more sympathetic because the idea is that, you know, he's he's very an unwilling participant in a lot of ways and he feels guilt and has to go back. But the other thing is he dies at the end of this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's re- I know that you haven't seen it, Liam, but how strange is that to, to film these basically a semi sequel to the terror 30 years later, just to try to get your copyright back. I was going to say, th- and all of this is just to hold on to the copyright of a movie that is not exactly like bursting with a fan community. Right. I mean, one of the easy sells of this movie is that you can put, uh, you know, you can put a DVD out. And it's like The Terror starring Jack Nicholson and Boris Karloff. And that's enough, you know, if you don't know anything more about it. Or like directed by Roger Corman, uh, or, and, you know, directed by Roger Corman and Francis Ford Coppola and Jack Hill and Jack Nichols. I mean, you can put all these names on it and that's enough to sell it to someone uh, who will then take it home and be like, what am I watching? <laughs> And I imagine that's what they were trying to do with this, you know. They could put it out in the world and maybe try to make a little extra money on something that they weren't able to make money on all of these public domain versions throughout the 80s. It doesn't make any sense, like, uh, that this is... To pull in Dick Miller, too, I actually think it would make more sense if it was randos who were not connected to the original production at all. (laughs) Because that at least would be, like... um, the the most crass sort of to involve actual Dick Miller in this very weird, very non lucrative money grab seems strange to me. <laughs> I don't think Dick Miller had any problem with it, but I it, the I, I think that one of the other odd things about it is just that I don't think a lot of people are even aware that this exists uh, because you know it was only on these VHS copies I guess that went out in Europe, so there might be a, like a large or a semi-large group of people in a certain part of the world who, when they think about the terror, they think of it having these these uh, segments that the rest oh of the world gosh. had never experienced before. That's oh, my a, gosh. Well, it's, you know, it's there is a part of me that really loves the idea of the effect of public domain. And I wish that more. I, I wish that the the uh, laws allowed things to fall into the public domain a lot quicker because I like the idea of people taking these things and creating new art from it. That's not what this is, you know. And you know, it, the fact is, I think there's a strong case to be made that Night of the Living Dead falling into the public domain completely changed horror movies, right? Because it meant that not only did a lot more people see that movie, but also that the very the concepts behind it allowed people to take those zombie ideas and run with it. And I mean, how many horror movies have people watching Night of the Living Dead because they can just use it legally? And then there's even like strange projects like that awful uh, Night of the Living Dead where they added modern scenes to it a few years ago. Um, or the one where they tried to animate the entirety of Night of the Living Dead. Do you know what I'm talking about? Reanimated, I think it was called? No, I don't know anything about that. So what they did is they sliced A Night of the Living Dead into segments and gave it to different animators, and each one animated a piece of it, and then they put all the pieces together, just like they did. They did that with a few projects, uh, just like um, the Hour Robocop remake from a few years back, and there's a Footloose one, and of course all the Star Wars movies, the first three, I should say, have all been done in a similar way, where people have recreated... Uh, like in like like 10 or 20 or 30 second chunks the entire movie and then it's all been pieced together was animated night of the living dead any good no (laughs) (laughs) it's really not fun to watch which is i when i heard about it i was like that's a great idea why not use something in the public domain because then you can actually release it into the world those other projects i was talking about were all done uh basically for free and then put out for free afterwards but this was a movie that someone you know could put all that effort in and the artist could actually profit from but unfortunately it's just not fun to watch (laughs) just one of those things i guess but uh but you know the idea again of the public domain and the way that movies propagate within it 
this movie is an example of both the good and the bad. The good being that a lot more people can see the movie. Like, and right now, that you're listening to this, you can watch it right now. The bad being that... Um, that the version that you see might be really junky. Or maybe the other bad thing is that maybe the people who made it aren't being compensated properly for it. Of course, yeah. the re- the concept of the long-term value of a movie has changed a lot since the 1960s. Well, I mean, as far as people are concerned now, movies shall exist as money makers forever. There is no, there is no retirement for art nowadays. It's mm. once a thing exists and you own it, you must keep it alive in any way possible for as long as possible, as long as you can continue to make money from it, which means reproductions of the same things over and over again. And the few things that aren't getting reproduced have to disappear and we yes. pretend they no longer exist. So it's- you're, you're put in this weird position for us as movie nerds, everyone is out here clamoring for uh, the things that we care about to get the same treatment that these other bigger productions are getting where they get re-released constantly and they get redone and all this stuff. But then th- there's another segment of folks who are familiar with archives, especially archives from other parts of the world that are like, actually, if you let these things die, then they go into the public domain and we could maintain them in a space in which they aren't forced to make money that like they could just exist as a piece of art, as opposed to uh, a labor force that must earn its keep. It's a really interesting point because what we have found in the past is as soon as someone is expected to preserve something, without the promise of, or even potential for profit from it, then they just don't do it, which is why, you know, all those archives of the BBC and all those old American television shows got wiped. You know, they just didn't have any perceived value. And and now, I mean, there are so many movies that were released, thankfully, very cheaply on VHS, and that is literally the only version that exists, right, is the version on VHS. Right. There's no original print. There's no kind of uh, original pieces to put together. And so it's it's really important, I think, that, that we take care of that. But like you said, so then you have to hope that some sort of boutique uh, releasing company is going to go through the effort of putting this out on, on DVD or Blu-ray. And if they don't, then, like you said, then they just cease to exist from that point. It's a really distressing thing to think about, especially if you think back to the beginning of movie history and the fact that, you know, what they say, that 90% of all silent movies are lost forever. I mean, we're, we're, we're going through a similar period now. There's a lot of movies from the 60s and 70s that are gone and will not be retrieved again because they were low budget and maybe just did not develop the, the profit potential to make them worthwhile to preserve. Well, I think it's just a mixed bag thing for me. Like, I am a fetishist when it comes to objects and to, uh, <laughs> you know, various various commodities. Is that why you married that uh, that roller coaster? <laughs> well, but, the, I, you know, there's no particular reason for me to think the fact that I own a Blu-ray copy of a movie has any actual meaning other than that I can watch it and not rely on a streaming service. Right. And so, like, the fact that I attach more meaning to that, I think, is evidence of, you know, why capitalism is a problem. On the other hand, it's getting to the point that if people like me and folks who have even more resources to burn don't preserve some version of these things, they really will go away. Uh, I, I think the only thing to keep in mind is the the grand statement of the, you know, that, that we're losing all of cinema history, because in a way, we kind of already have lost. I mean, as you pointed out with all those silent films, mm-hmm. we actually have already lost most of cinema history. We're just in danger of losing even the profitable part of, you know what I mean? Right. It's like the only cinema that ever lasted was that which could make the money, because that's what we value here. But now that new audiences aren't exposed to 
to those things and they those those pieces of art aren't even given an opportunity to make money they must also go away for all time and that's a real bummer and and really friends who i think of as being if they have a bigger collection than, than me then they probably are an obsessive weirdo mm-hmm. uh god bless them because <laughs> without those obsessive weirdos there are probably films that would just go away that they would just never exist and like you know uh, uh, i don't love that. I, I get it that it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things per se, but on a personal level, no, I want to preserve all these things because that's my personality. That's why I have comic books. That's why I have records. It's why I have too many t-shirts. I like the <laughs> things and I want to hold on to them forever. <laughs> uh, so after talking about that depressing topic, let's talk about something <laughs> a little bit more positive, which is Dick Miller as Stefan in uh, The Terror from the year 1963. As we mentioned before, Stefan is the Baron's number one man. According to the the summary on Wikipedia, he is the Baron's son. Um, it says, the Baron's son and trustful servant who serves the imposter, meaning that he was the original Baron's son. I don't know if that's clarified specifically in the movie, but if we nope. go with that idea. By the way, this also says that Gustav, I thought he was the old crone's son. No, he was just a village man who became... The mentally ill servant of the witch. Whatever. I don't think any of these details matter. <laughs> I'm just surprised. I'm just I'm just voicing my surprise. Liam, what did you think of Dick Miller as Stefan in The Terror? Well, I think if you can ignore the fact that his uh, way of being is, is never adjusted to this environment, not just his speech, but the way he holds himself, the way he interacts with people, his body language, nothing about who he is fits the era this film is meant to be in (laughs) if you can ignore that it's actually a pretty good i mean he's great there's nothing about his performance that's bad it's just ill fit it's literally like going to see a polka band and there's a guy who's ripping sick metal solos the whole show and you're just going that guy's a really good guitar player not sure this is the project right that he should be in that's how i felt about dick in this in this movie mr miller is a very strong performer he gives weight to lines that are poorly written he interacts with jack nicholson as if he could take jack nicholson seriously <laughs> you know and yet and yet it the whole time you're thinking why is stefan from the streets like why is stefan <laughs> like a 50 street kid right now like it the, it, it, it just his way of being doesn't quite fit the role. And so it's a little off-putting for the movie. But then again, he's playing a lot of the movie across from Jack Nicholson, who is similarly miscast, but mm-hmm. also not performing as well. That's he seems exactly to be right. Phoning it in. So it's almost while it is off-putting, some of the scenes it kind of fits because it kind of feels like we're watching a very complicated episode of Quantum Leap in which Jack Nicholson and Dick Miller have been quantum leaped into this world and they're like interacting with each other. I do find it's it's a little easier when it's just Dick Miller and Jack Nicholson working yes. together in this. Yes. Even though those scenes are just like there's so much exposition that has to be delivered by Stefan in those scenes, but it's a little easier to accept because they're at like a similar level because like you said there's no believability that they are supposed to be the characters they are in this movie, but at least when they're talking to each other, you are not distracted by the fact, hey, that's Boris Karloff over there who does bring <laughs> that weight and believability to the character. Right. And you know, I don't want to discount Sandra Knight either, but her role is very much based on 
you know, she's basically sleepwalking because she's supposed to be distant and ghostly. So her mesmerized. performance yeah, mesmerized. So you don't really get much from that character. And Dorothy Newman as Katrina, the the crone, the witch. I mean, she's fine too, but a lot of her dialogue is like post dubbed. It uh, it's it and doesn't fit her mouth very well. So you nope. get the impression they were piecing a lot of this together in post. Yeah, I just think um, when it. it Regardless of those two women who I think are doing, you know, admirable jobs with what they have, I think it really boils down to the fact that uh, Boris Karloff was zapped into this movie from a good, uh, <laughs> from a, for maybe not good, but a slightly more believable period piece. And then Dick Miller and Jack Nicholson are like hanging out on the Lower East Side practicing maybe like i don't it's just that and so when the scenes that they're all together you're just like these people don't know each other i barely believe that these actors know each other let alone the characters are supposed to be playing it's crazy talk yeah it's so it's it's a real kind of strange mixture of a strong performance of a weak character with weak dialogue with weak motivations that is also sounds weak because the delivery is completely inappropriate for the kind of character it is and I know that kind of sounds like we're soft peddling in regards to Dick Miller's performance but I think that's really accurate I think he is a good actor and in other roles he's been great but here he's giving the best possible performance he can in a role that he's completely wrong for. I mean, I think someone could have forced him to stretch. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I think I think the six or so directors who worked on this freaking thing <laughs> didn't care enough about it to be like, you know what, Dick, let's do that again. And let's have you try to act a little more stiff in the role. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, just something, you know? I, I You said that a couple of times now about, like... Uh, not caring, Liam, but I don't think that's necessarily fair to the people involved. If anything, these are young people who are desperate for their first chance, right? And that includes Jack Nicholson here, who probably care a little too much, but maybe just don't have the skill to pull it off or maybe are intimidated a little bit. You know, notoriously, Frank Francis Ford Coppola was asked to shoot just a few days of this movie and then went ahead and shot 11 days and they barely used any of the footage that he shot because he's Francis Ford Coppola and he has a very specific view of how he wants to make movies. But um, to me, this is like, there's an element of too many cooks here, but even that too many cooks part would have been okay with a strong script. If they had like Charles Griffiths, who did uh, uh, a Little Shop of Horrors and A Bucket of Blood, if they had someone with a little bit more of a winkiness and a little bit more of a campiness to the dialogue on display here, this movie would be so much more fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, I obviously I don't actually know the motivations of the people involved, but it's it's hard for certain elements of this to not to feel just shoddy. Uh, and 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 you know for whatever reason don't feel fully formed or thought out. But then again, this is a Roger Corman production, so you know all, who knows exactly how equipped anyone was going into this production anyway. <laughs> I think it was very much a case where Roger Corman was like, "I think we can do this," and even if we don't do this, well, I mean, you know, th- these people owe me the time anyway. It's not going to cost me that much, so let's just go ahead and try. And if I come out with a movie. Well, all the better. I can put it on a double bill. I can put it out there into the world. And Roger never had any problem and still hasn't attaching his name to something of lesser quality, which is why his filmography is so interesting, because he could make those Poe movies like the the preceding years before this movies that are of a much higher quality and obviously had a lot more time and care put into them. And then, you know, if you watched something like The Raven or Mask of the Red Death and then followed it with the terror, you'd be like, what happened to the guy who directed those other movies? 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have real mixed feelings on Roger Corman. Maybe we can explore those feelings in a future episode because one of the things about Dick Miller is that he worked a lot with Roger Corman and Roger Corman alumni all throughout the, uh, really, the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And we're going to be talking a lot about that on the future episodes of You Don't Know Dick. Liam, I want you to give me, on a scale of one to five, where would you put the terror from the year 1963? Two and a half. Two and a half? I think that's very fair. Uh, Maybe three. Actually, let me say, I think three. Yeah, on five, three. Okay, so slightly better than average is The Terror from the year 1963. I think I'm going to give it a two. Uh, I do like it. It's odd because I feel like as we were having this conversation, I liked it more than you. But I do think that uh, its flaws in terms of the script and in terms of the performances are a little difficult to get past. That said, as I mentioned I find some of the bad things amusing. Well, as long as you do, hey, I'm not knocking you. Whatever you, whatever your 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 uh, uh, bag is, Liam, I'm glad that you can pursue it. For those who do want to check out <laughs> the terror, I will link uh, the film detective version of it into our show notes today. On the next episode of You Don't Know Dick, we are going back to 1959, and maybe Dick Miller's most recognizable performance, uh, that of Walter Paisley in 1959's A Bucket of Blood. Uh, this is a, a movie that uh, features Dick Miller in a lead performance, a rare lead performance. And again, it's a movie that's very uh, accessible and, and available if you want to check it out. Just recently actually released on Blu-ray in what I've been led to uh, believe is a beautiful restored version. So you can definitely check that out as well. But on the next episode of You Don't Know Dick, A Bucket of Blood. You excited for that, Liam? I am very much. I've never seen it. And I really am excited to check it out. Well, we will all have a chance. That includes you, listeners. If you want to check out more about Cinema Smorgasbord or more episodes of You Don't Know Dick, what's the best way to do it, Liam? Well, they can, uh, of course, check us out as part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network uh, over at CinepunksCINEPUNX.com and a variety of other podcasts and writings and things that make up the Cinepunks family. We also have our own website, CinemaSmorgasbord.com, or they can find us on Twitter at CinemaSmorg. S-M-O-R-G, if they want to see our various tweets. uh, They can also follow you on Twitter, I guess, but that seems like a total waste of time. I think it's worthwhile. You can do that at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. You can also, of course, follow Liam on there as well. What's that, Liam? Liam Rules, (laughs) R-U-L-Z? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, Cinema Smorgasbord is a uh, umbrella podcast with a lot of different podcasts underneath it. Yeah, you can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com if you want to check out those other podcasts as well. You might also want to join our Facebook group. Just do a search for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook, or you can find the link to that over on the cinemasmorgasbord.com website as well. Liam. Yes, sir. I think it's I think it's time for us to say goodnight until we get to experience another Dick Miller classic. What do you think? Yeah, that's probably true. All right. Good day, everyone. Bye. Bye.